Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Abide in Liberty. My name is Braden Hayes. I wanted to start diving into some current events that deal specifically with the principles of separation of powers in our government and checks and balances. So before diving into that, what I want to do is for this week, I'm going to do just kind of a brief high-level overview of what the different separations of power are and what some of the primary checks and balances between the different branches and levels of government are to set the stage for next week where we'll dive into particularly um, immigration and the laws that have been passed and things that have happened there over the last several years, as well as uh, what we are hearing a lot about today with um, Congress trying to pass a budget and the fact that for much of my adult life, the spending of money at the federal government level has been operated under continuing resolutions and a perpetual raising of the debt ceiling. So that's kind of what we're setting the stage for. Um, We'll get to that next week, but let's dive in and talk about separation of powers and checks and balances. So the idea, let's go back a little bit before to about 200 BC, where the idea of the separation of powers originated. This was from a guy named Polybius who was a Greek historian and philosopher around 200 BC. And he sat down and was contemplating, as he had studied history, he was trying to figure out which is the best form of government. So the three main forms of government up to that point were a monarchy, an aristocracy, and a democracy. When he looked at a monarchy, he saw different pros and cons, different strengths and weaknesses. So the strength of a monarchy is that there is a strength and vigor to administer government efficiently, especially in times of war. When battlefields change quickly and when there's a need for quick, decisive action, you don't want a body of politicians deliberating for months or years over policies. You need one person who can make a call make the decision, and who ultimately holds the responsibility for the consequences of those decisions. Now, the problem with a monarchy is that, except in rare exceptions, monarchies tend to lead to tyranny, where, you know, the idea that, um, you know, power corrupts, but absolute power, like you would find in a monarchy, corrupts absolutely, has been borne out in history countless times where someone um, gets power and just wants more and begins to exercise more and more and control until all practically all freedom is trampled on and you know that nation's populace is just completely oppressed and ground into the dust the second form of government that he looked at was an aristocracy this is where you have Um, a select few, kind of the elites of the society, the wealthy of the society, um, who are the ones running the government. Now, this, the benefits of this actually is that you have these people who represent the interests of the wealth. These people are care about those who control um, the country's natural resources, and they're incentivized to deploy those natural resources and those 
assets in a very efficient way and in a way to maximize productivity and prosperity. But the problem is it tends to be prosperity for those who own those assets. So again, this, this type of a government, ideally you would have these elite well-educated, wealthy folks who are trying to deploy the assets they have control over to the betterment of all. But inevitably, eventually, these types of governments descend into an oligarchy where you have a few very powerful people or families that control everything and who are only looking out for themselves. And once again, you have a tyrannical form of government where the common people are um, relegated to livestock, basically. This is kind of what we see um, in the days leading up to the French Revolution. There was a monarchy, but there was also a very strong aristocracy, and the common people suffered as a result until it boiled over. They couldn't take it anymore. The third type of government that Polybius looked at and was considering the pros and cons of was a democracy. Ancient Greece practiced this type of a government, but even he saw some issues with this. You know, we hear a lot in the news and in, in our society about protecting our democracy and, you know, democracy has to live. Well, the truth is we're not a democracy. Our country never has been a democracy. Um, Now, the benefits, though, of a democracy is that it represents the masses, the common people. They finally, under democracy, get a say. They can't be controlled by the elite few or the elite one. They get to make their own choices. But democracies tend to be as violent in their ends as they are short in their duration. They don't last long because they very quickly descend into mob rule and violence. And it's, um, you know, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but some of the most bloody and some of the most oppressive periods of time have resulted from democracies, which is why the founding fathers wanted to implement a republic like what we have with multiple layers of checks and balances, with a separation of authority and power. It's not enough if you can get the majority of the people to agree to something. That has to be exercised within certain boundaries and limits. In our case, that's a constitution that sets boundaries on what the majority can and cannot do. It lists rights that even if the majority wishes to deprive the minority from, they cannot violate those because of that Bill of Rights. Um, So anyways, there's lots of benefits to a republic, especially the way that the Founding Fathers structured this republic over democracy and why we've lasted so long. Um, You know, the longest standing constitutional republic in world history is no small achievement. So going back to Polybius, he was kind of the one that had this idea that we should have different branches of government, each that try to capture the benefits of each of these three different types of government. But it wasn't until nearly 2,000 years later in the 1700s when a guy named Baron Charles de Montesquieu, a Frenchman, brought the idea back, kind of resurrected this idea of separation of powers from antiquity. Because if you recall, during the 1700s and the centuries that led up to it, monarchy was the form of government or some kind of aristocracy or some kind of a feudal system. But in the 1700s, he brought this back and added to it the concept of, yes, you should have separate powers and and power divided up 
between different branches of government, but you also have to tie them together and coordinate them and make them dependent on each other in some way. Otherwise, you'll end up with nothing happening. You'll end up with stalemate, right? Without the ability of one to check the other or one branch to um, swat the other down if it tries to flex beyond its bounds, then that you you lose all the benefits from that separation of powers. So the founding fathers created three branches of government. I'm sure we've all heard this before and are aware of it. You have the legislative branch, which represents that kind of democracy, the idea that this is the branch that is closest to the people. In particular, the House of Representatives was supposed to be closest to the people. Um, the Senate was supposed to protect state rights, and that still, by extension, meant a protection of the people because the people wanted their autonomy to do many things within their own state without the interference of the federal government. The legislative branch has the lawmaking power, period. They're the ones that make the laws. They're the ones that originate tax bills. And in fact, the House of Representatives, the one that is directly elected by the people and always has been directly elected by the people is the one that has to originate bills that deal with taxes. If the Senate feels like, hey, we should raise taxes, they can't introduce that bill. They could suggest it. They might write a letter to the House of Representatives saying you should think about this, but they cannot originate it. Our direct representatives are the ones, the only ones that can do that. Now, I mentioned this, you know, I think I mentioned a minute ago that Originally, it was the House of Representatives that was closest to the people, and the Senate was the branch that was meant to look after state rights. And that changed with the passing of the 17th Amendment. Now, um, the Senate is elected directly by you and I, by the common citizens, um, and it's it's become fairly clear that a lot of the the federal power grabs, the the power that the federal government has usurped from the states is a direct result of the fact now that the states don't get to elect the senators. Um, that was the primary check against the federal government encroaching on state power was if that happened, then the legislate the state legislatures could fire the senators and get new ones in there that would look after state interests. Um, that's an amendment. It's in the Constitution now. We have to abide by it. But it did um, it did violate a very important principle of separation of powers, and the result has not been good. It has been a, uh, a steady transfer of power from the local and state level to the federal government. And I'll just touch on that briefly while we're talking about it. The, there's the idea of separation of powers at the federal level, but the founders also built in a separation of powers between federal and state and local governments. And that that office of the United States Senate was supposed to be that primary check against the federal government trying to take over that authority. Um, all right. The legislative branch or Congress is also the one that decides how to spend money. We call that the power of the purse. So they're the ones that decide what agencies and what programs get money and which don't. They regulate, Congress regulates foreign commerce. They borrow money. They're the ones that establish the naturalization laws. Those are immigration laws. They coin money. They establish post offices and roads. They oversee trademark and copyright laws. They declare war, 
and they raise and maintain armies and navies. If you look at the Constitution, this is Article 1 that talks about the legislative powers, and it is the longest by far. This was intended to be the most powerful branch of the government, kept in check by the other two, but they have the most stuff to do. Now, the second branch of government, and this is the one that the early founders were very leery of giving too much power. That was the number one topic of debate during the ratification conventions um, for at the at the different state uh, constitutional conventions was, are we giving this federal government too much power? And specifically, are we giving the executive too much power? Because they wanted to stay as far away from old King George as possible. So they gave the executive branch very little to do, actually. And here's some of the things that they were supposed to do. Number one is make sure that the laws are faithfully executed. That's why they're the executive branch. Legislative branch passes the laws, and it's the president's job to make sure those laws are enforced. Those federal laws are enforced. It's not their job to make sure state laws or city ordinances are enforced, but that all federal laws are duly and faithfully executed. He's also the commander-in-chief. This is the main benefit of having a single person in charge is the ability to respond decisively and quickly during times of war. He is the commander-in-chief. He's also the one that makes treaties, and he can nominate ambassadors and judges. The judicial branch really had no power to act. This was kind of more of an interpretation branch. So they were supposed to oversee cases between states if one state is suing the other. In cases where the United States itself is either the one suing someone else or being sued. Um, And their primary function is to ensure that laws that Congress passes um, are constitutional. And if they're not, they, they strike those laws down. Uh, This was by far considered to be the weakest branch of the federal government. Now, let's switch over and talk about checks and balances. This is the idea that, you know, we're going to separate these powers into three separate arenas, but now we have to stitch these three branches together in such a way that forces them to work with each other in order to get done what they want to do and what they're required to do. Um. And the idea here, too, is if one oversteps the other, there are legal remedies. There are things that each branch can do to rein that other branch in, the rogue branch in, to to back within its constitutional bounds. Because founders' belief of human nature was that people would try, if they could, to amass as much power as possible. And if there weren't consequences for that behavior, then it would run unchecked. So they built in ways for each branch to hold to hold the others accountable. So the legislative branch um, had power of impeachment. So the House of Representatives could impeach a president, but also judges and other uh, federally elected officials, um, including members of their own body. Uh, and the Senate then has to try and confirm those impeachments. So if the House of Representatives impeaches and they did with, for example, with Donald Trump, the Senate has to agree with the results of that impeachment. If they do, then the Senate can choose to remove that person from office. And if not, then nothing really happens except that that president or that official has 
impeachment on their record, kind of that stain on their reputation and on their record. The Senate gets, so I mentioned that the president of the United States can enter into treaties, but it has to be ratified by the Senate. Um, The Congress also has to confirm the president's picks for ambassadors and judges. So the president just doesn't get to pick whoever they want. The legislative branch has to agree with those nominations. Um, And the legislature, one of its biggest checks on all the others is that power of the purse that I was talking about. So if the federal government, if the executive branch goes and starts trying to put money or wants to create programs or create new agencies that um, are not legal or that is not in keeping with the will of the people, they can starve those agencies to death by simply not funding them. Um, Things that Congress doesn't agree to give money to don't happen. And that that is an enormous check on executive power. And that was done intentionally. The executive branch, so the president, has to confirm laws that are passed by Congress before they take effect, unless Congress can amass enough votes to override a veto. So even if a president doesn't agree with a law that's being passed, if if that law passes both branches of the of Congress with a two-thirds vote, then it becomes law anyways, whether the president likes it or not. Well, then you might ask, well, what happens then if the president refuses to enact and enforce that law? And indeed, that does happen sometimes. And we'll get into that next week uh, in one particular case with immigration where that certainly has happened. And the final check there is us, you and I. We get to choose uh, whether we want to elect that president who ignored the law that our legislative branch, that our representatives just passed. And chances are a president that ignores the voice of the people that way and their representatives isn't going to be around very much longer. Um, And then you have the judicial branch and their check is that they can overturn laws if they're proven unconstitutional. Now, the founding fathers were sure that if they separated powers in this way and gave each each, uh, branch control and um, checks on the others, that each branch would guard uh, its powers jealously. And as we're going to see, as we talk about some specific examples next week, we're going to see that that has not turned out to be the case, that in an attempt to avoid accountability, um, different branches of government have kind of turned a blind eye or, or looked the other way when other branches were usurping power because it benefited them politically. It benefited their agendas politically. Um, And it's really caused some serious issues and the erosion of the rule of law in this country. So make sure and check back next week. um, That's really where the rubber hits the road and where we're going to see what happens when the principles of separation of power and checks and balances are ignored. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at AbideInLiberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting LibertyYouthAcademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.